Reading from Galatians 1 and 2. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. 
How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, you may be seated. Thank you for that reading, Emily. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his very life for our sins so that he may snatch us from the grasp of the present evil age, thus acting in accordance uh, with the intention of God the Father. Amen. Now Paul opens his letter. He brings the Galatian congregation as they hear, as, as we've noted before, they would have heard this letter read aloud, um, as they hear his message. He brings them into that spot, spot where we intuitively respond amen, and they too would have intuitively responded amen. Now, as, as many of you know, we started a sermon series in the book of Galatians, um, and we've been way too slowly walking through it. Now, last summer, we did the Sermon on the Mount, and I would say, I've got to speed up. I don't know if we have enough time, and people would say, take your time. I have a feeling nobody will say that about the Pauline corpus in the book of Galatians. Um, so I do need to pick up the pace a little, which is the long reading for today. But the long, yeah, Jesse's, Jesse's no, but the Cowan Corner is like the minority report. Like, you know, if, if you guys are nodding yes, I assume more people are nodding no. If you guys are nodding no, I assume more people are nodding yes, which is good to know where that sits in your congregational life together. Thanks be to God. So we took a long portion today, and we'll continue. And, and what, what today's portion of Galatians is about is sort of about how Paul's journey with this struggle around what does this gospel mean for those who were formerly Jewish, or as Judaizers or um, Christian Jewish people are, are coming to the Galatian, have come to the Galatian community and tried to lay a layer on top of the gospel. And so Paul brought us to worship in the introduction, but as we walked through last week, he moves from that, he, you say amen, and he says, I'm astonished how quickly you are abandoning the way, which if you had been listening to that the first time, you'd be like, wow, that, that, that escalated quickly. Um, uh, it moved fast from where we were being welcomed and greeted to where you would expect a greeting similar to the one we have used for the series to the saints of defiance, to say, I thank God for you holy ones in Galatia. Paul has no time for that when he writes to the Galatians because he fears that they are abandoning the gospel that he had preached to them. And so he walks through at the, at the section we went through last week about this confusion and this perversion that's coming to the gospel. And he even says that if I or an angel from heaven were to preach another gospel, that they should be in the Greek anathema, cut off. And we talked about um, uh, in Joshua, uh, in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament that was popular at this time, it was similar to the ban of sort of destroying all the images of foreign gods, is that they should be somewhat smashed if they preach another gospel. Paul then is bold enough to ask, am I trying to win the approval of human beings? But you're like, smashing others? Yes, maybe, but also we're on the other side, so obviously not. And what's happening for Paul as we reconstruct this story, and this is what's hard about this, is it seems like these people are coming, and not only are they sowing this other gospel, which seems to sound like 
Paul welcomed you into this covenant with Israel that's been opened up to you through Jesus Christ. But he's only opened it part way. He's, he's giving you the softball on it. If you guys really want to be in this, and perhaps as we see in that accusation with Peter at the end of the section, if you want to break bread and have table fellowship with those who are really in this community, it's time for you to take on circumcision and some of the dietary restrictions and celebra- celebrations. It's, it's not clear that they're at this moment in time that they would be asking them be, to become full Jews, um, but to become Messiah-like Jews who participate in the ancient Jewish life in some patterns and ways. And so they've sort of accused Paul of sort of being out of step with this message as it's going throughout the ancient world. And not only that, of sort of being... Um, uh, easy on people. Um, he's not giving them the real deal. He's, he's telling them the good news, but only in part. And these teachers come, and they're trying to sort of bring the Galatian congregation into this sort of Judaism state. Now, one of the things um, we're going to talk about is how Paul got to be Paul today, but one of the specters that hangs over the book of Galatians in the modern West is Martin Luther. Um, the happy picture of Martin Luther, eighth grade graduation. No, I'm kidding. It was a bad joke, but it was too easy. Um, uh, Martin Luther is this um, uh, man who leads this Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 15-1600s, and he discovers in Galatians this freedom from something that is is um, governing his soul. He sees in his existence in the Catholic Church at this time as it as it struggled with faithfulness itself first his own how am i going to achieve the gospel if you're familiar with the phrase selling of indulgences i don't know if if, if, if this is a weird pastor sidestep but the the pastors who are willing to write you a religious exemption for the vaccine if you donate to their church like selling indulgences never goes away it's always there um um, and pastors today, we do have a low bar. If you write a check, I'll sign anything. Um, not true. Um, but uh, they're selling indulgences, and they're trying to say that, like, souls go to this um, middle state after they die, and there's some sort of purgation that needs to happen for them before they can enter into heaven. And one of the ways in which as any society would do that is to say the more socioeconomically you're secure, the less likely you are to be infected in that way. And even that way, you can sort of buy your way to build these big cathedrals throughout Europe. You can buy indulgences to free you from that. And so Luther, in his anguish, he's an Augustinian monk at this place, finds in Galatians, and most of the Pauline corpus, this idea that Jews struggled with this as well. They never knew if they could do enough. And so what Christ does is frees them from those restrictions. Now, one of the things that I've said for the sermon series is how are we going to hear Galatians for ourselves today? Constructing the historical world and the challenges of what happened to the Galatian church, I think, will help us hear some of what God has for us today in the book of Galatians, but I don't think it's enough. Martin Luther in his time was able to take what he knew of the world of the book of Galatians and apply it in a way that I think is true to Paul's observation on not going into slavery and not surrendering yourself to works and not trying to earn your own salvation. The problem being, as we listen to it uh, 
500 years after Martin Luther is, is that we know some things like that early Jews weren't walking around anguished in their conscience if they had done enough to participate in their own salvation. They knew the marks of covenant faithfulness to be in the family of God, and that's what they held on to more than their own works. So as we hear in this section, and as we get to it, is Paul brags about his advancement in Judaism and how he's achieving more and more. And it's apocalypse of Jesus Christ that knocks him off his horse in, in Damascus and brings him to a different spot, but he doesn't say, and woe was I anguished in trying to prove my salvation. But what he talks about is how what um, the overhanging question, which I think Luther na- nailed in his time, um, is, and I put in this way with a couple different ways of phrasing it, is the overarching question is what will free us from slavery? What will justify us? Which I, uh, as we go further, I want to talk about how justification in its legal sort of forensic sense Um, while true is somewhat limited way to understand the biblical word of justification has more to do with joining the family of God again of of as I said with um, if first century Jews weren't worried about am I doing enough to earn my salvation but did I have the covenant badge of membership in the community of faith so justification is not as much got Christ doing our works for us which he is but it's also justifying us rectifying us into the family of faith um, we are being adopted in our justification, not just justified. Uh, what's the saying, David? You hold just as if I had never sinned. Um, that's a man. I always count on you for these sayings. There's something justification and sanctification. That's a classic way of dividing that up. I think it's just as if I had never sinned, which is true, but it's not the full story. Uh, how how God might uh, rectify us. How God restores us how God reconciles us. What will do this? And the challenge of Galatians is that the alternative teachers are saying some works of law will be that. Whereas what Paul's radical transformation is faith is the ways in which we know that we are being adopted into this new covenant, this new family, this new creation. That is the mechanism by which we are freed, is faith in what God has done in that apocalyptic sense, what we read in the beginning, in Jesus Christ is what frees us. And so if we go back to, um, uh, I'm trying to think if I have any more to say about Luther. I hope that all made sense. Uh, you have a pastor who majored in history. My last church, somebody bought me a church that said, history major, I'd find you more interesting if you were dead. Um, uh, which was, uh, I don't know what he was trying to say to me. Um, I tried not to read between the lines a long time on that one. Um, but anyways, uh, that's history lesson for like, how are we going to hear this gospel for us today? Interestingly enough, and I'll probably say this once or twice, but Eugene Peterson, uh, the message started in some sense, he says, when he translated Galatians to help his church in Bel Air, Maryland, to understand how Paul's letter might be addressing the racial conflict of the 1960s, of the 1960s and 70s. He said that was his first undertaking in translating for a lay audience. And, and you can see as we go through Galatians how this message of that God has one family, not two families, how God is unifying both Jew and Gentile, uh, free and slave, uh, men and women together into one family could speak strongly 
to that civil rights era, that that could be a message in which, as he was teaching his, his largely suburban white congregation, that there's something that they should be attuned to in solidarity with other Christians. This is that remember the poor passage at the end, is that Paul isn't talking about, or the Galatian congregation, the Jerusalem congregation, so many congregations, isn't talking about remembering the amorphous poor, the poor everywhere in the world. They're talking about remembering the specific poor who are, in some sense, in the community of faith, but are going through trials. Um, that can speak to that, that moment and when Peterson originally translated this for his congregation. So how is it we hear it again? This is the Greek word for evangelion, which is where we get evangelism, evangelical, all these other things. Uh, so I'll, because all those words are not politically loaded, I just thought I'd put the Greek up. It's a reverse. They are politically loaded. Um, uh, but Paul's evangelion is that announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And this is going to be pivotal to understanding why he's going to tell his story in this way, which I know I need to get to, is that, um, is that he, when he is, experiences that moment from Damascus, is he has his whole mind reset within the frame that he already had. Which is a weird thing to talk about is that Paul, um, uh, Emily and I were talking about this during church, Paul uh, does go to, to Peter after three years of sort of reconfiguring himself. We don't know what he did for those three years. He could have been trying to start churches. He could have been uh, sort of resettling himself. He could have been doing, we don't know, but he goes to some place and then he finally goes to see Peter. But most of us, again, Paul doesn't have access to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, most of us, if we had heard this revelation of what Jesus Christ has done, would go and want to find out what's the story of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, as the persecutor of the church, would have familiarity with it because he's trying to stamp out what he sees as a Jewish heresy. Um, and that's important to remember. The early Christian movement isn't another religion even for Paul. Now, for the Jewish Christians, it's obviously not another religion. But even for Paul, it's this fulfillment of the promises to Judaism that he sees happening in Jesus Christ. We talked about this at the Bible study. I'm, I'm not sure how much Paul sees himself as a prototype for all Christian believers. I'm not sure that that's the best way of looking at him. Um, and particularly because there's the saying in which Paul says he's the chief sinner. And if you hang around Christian culture long enough, people will say, well, you know, we're all the chief sinner. And Paul is not trying to play some language game with that. What he's trying to say is, as somebody who knew all the scriptures, who knew what the awaited Messiah was that we were looking for, to, who knew in depth all of these things, the fact that I missed it and persecuted the church and went to stamp it out, makes me the chief of all sinners. Again, this is not a game where it's like, well, you don't know my story, Paul. He'd be like, well, that doesn't really matter. That's not the point I'm trying to... <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. Um, good pastor trick. You know, that's a good point. We'll talk afterwards about that. Don't read in between the line if I ever say that to you. Um, David, we'll talk afterwards. Uh, uh, the... Evangelion, Paul's is this announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and it's apocalyptic in that way. Um, and this is why I think so much of what we have is what I tried to clear some of the ground with last week as what are our Gospels, whether they be prosperity, um, which I think is perhaps more devious than, than sort of um, 
uh, other ones, but, but we have, you know, the evangelical, the reformed, all these sort of other gospels, and they all contain part of the truth. The gospel of sin management, Don asked, you asked last Sunday, should I just go off and sin all I want then? And I was like, okay, got to walk this one back. Um, but uh, uh, the gospels of sin management, all these sort of other gospels prohibit us from hearing the real gospel, which is what God has done in Jesus Christ. That is Paul's gospel, is that God has done something amazing in Jesus Christ, and that has, uh, there's a line in Flannery O'Connor's uh, short story, um, A Good Man is Hard to Find, where, what is it, Ray, that Jesus done thrown the whole world off balance, one of the non-Christian characters says. Um, and for a non-Christian, that's an, an interesting, Jesus done thrown the whole world off balance. And raising from the dead and doing these things. And that is what Paul is sort of saying, is that the announcement of the gospel is that Jesus has thrown the whole world off balance. So that all those things we thought would free us, self-discipline, um, uh, praying the sinner's prayer, all these uh, uh, justification by faith, can miss the point if they don't accept that what is really saving is faith that comes through Jesus Christ. And in the next section, we'll hear faith in Jesus Christ is one way of translating what makes up this pivotal section at the end of Galatians 2, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That what Paul might be arguing is that we participate in the faithfulness of Christ more than falling back into our own faith. You can see how that almost becomes a work in itself. Uh, I believe in my belief rather than I believe in what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's the next section. This section I was the least excited to preach about, which probably explains the long introduction. So I'll put the, the text up here as we're going through it, um, and I'll try to, be, uh, to make some insights to it. This is the first one that Paul sort of introduces after he has said that this is a gospel that I did not receive from other people. And that's pivotal to understanding this early part of Galatians. The, the section before this, if you remember, Paul talks about how I didn't get this gospel from humans. And gospel in this context being the announcement of something, the glad tidings. Um, that's what it means in the, uh, the ancient Near East, this Roman sort of pronouncement of what, of what Caesar has done or a battle won. Paul says, I didn't get this gospel from another person, but it was, it was revealed to me by God. And that's what he's going to start into, because you've heard of my previous way of life, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Destroy it. And here he, he talks about how he was advancing in Judaism and was extremely zealous. To pause the word zealous here, um, is one that in this context would have meant people so into their Judaic faith that they would kill others for it. The two paradigms for this are, um, man, I wish I'd written down their names, um, but two stories, one in Numbers and one in, uh, I think, Joshua, people who killed other Jews to protect their nation. Um, one, is, one of them is um, having an affair or, uh, with a, a Moabite woman and, and I wish I could remember the name. Um, he kills the person. What? Phineas. Yes, Phineas. Phineas is zealous for the Lord. And so Paul is, is not just saying that I was like a good Jew, but I was one so good at my Judaism, so heightened in my Judaic nature, that he's not saying he was a zealot, but that he was one who was zealous so much for the traditions that he would kill for it. And that's exactly what he um, was doing as he was trying to protect Judaism from this new Christian segment that's coming among it. 
But then he says, but when God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. This is him saying again that this gospel comes from God, not from somebody else. But that, that um, passage there has two passages, one from Isaiah that Emily read for us during the, or did Kim read it? Kim read, one of you read the Isaiah one. Uh, a passage from Isaiah, and what Paul is doing is overlaying his prophetic call with the prophetic call of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The other one is from Jeremiah. And what he's saying is, and both of those have to do, as, as the one that was read during the worship segment, um, with being a light to the Gentiles. That Paul's apocalyptic call is to expand and bring people into the kingdom. That what was promised in Isaiah, that was promised in Jeremiah, what was promised throughout the Old Testament, that Israel someday, all nations would gather to it, has been accomplished in Jesus Christ is what Paul's saying. And because Paul is so, in Ephesians, you'll see this more, so centered on that he is in Christ, he can almost, in his prophetic role, overlay prophecies about Jesus into his own realm of being. Not, again, this is where, I'm not sure that Paul is meant to be a prototype for the average believer. Maybe he had a specific call in this propheticness. But he overlays that, and so he is now going to be this witness for the Gentiles to come into Israel. But it's not by law. It's a Torah-free sort of thing. It's a uh, circumcision-free covenant that he invites them into. And he doesn't consult with anybody, but he wants to make clear that this comes from God. So he goes to Arabia, and then he returns to Damascus. This is, uh, some of this is preserved for us in Acts. Um, yeah, there's a bit of what Paul's vision might have been like. The, at this time, people were more acquainted, I think, sometimes with the two-layered world, that you would see our world and that behind our world there were uh, angels and principalities and powers and things going on at the same time so that you were never um, just one world without those things. And, and so we live in a highly sort of um, empiricist world where all things are explained through science and this, that, and the other. And so it's less likely to see this, but it's almost like Paul is saying the veil had been pulled from the world that we live in and see mainly in our lives so that I actually met Jesus Christ. That in that overlap there, he's, he's experienced Jesus. Um, and then that actual meeting, he's been thrown into Jesus. He's done thrown everything out of balance. Then after three years, they went up to Jerusalem. So Paul takes three years before he goes and visits with Peter, and he stays with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I'm writing you is no lie. Here, again, Paul is either trying to separate himself from the Jerusalem church as saying that, like, I've always been doing what God has told me to do, or he's trying to say that it's been in line with the Jerusalem church. And what you guys hearing come from these Judaizers, these other apostles, um, these ones who come with a gospel plus thing. It's the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ plus other things um, are telling you that I never had met with them. And so he makes clear here that after three years, he went up to Jerusalem and met with him. The Greek has this notion of to confer and to talk. Um, but here we're affirmed in Paul's sort of radical sense of the gospel um, that he is uh, set apart for this mission. And again, uh, Paul is not super concerned about knowing all the details of Jesus' life um, in the way that a gospel writer is. It's enough for him to know that the faithful Jew, 
was raised by the God of Israel in a way that all people are now being brought into this new creation and new covenant. That's the radical notion for him, and it's the radical seed of his gospel. The next section, um, then I went to Syria, uh, Sis, Syria and Sicily. This is where we know more that at least his church planning journey starts. I was personally unknown to the churches of Josiah that are in Christ. They only heard the report, and this is the miracle of the gospel, if you want to hear it in the story. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Um, in the Greek, it's almost more that they praised God in me. Um, that they praised what God was doing in me as I was located in this. And so Paul goes out and begins to teach and, and bring this law-free gospel throughout the world. And he's doing so, and people are getting this, that the one who persecuted us is now preaching the faith he tried to destroy. This sort of radical change that happens in his life. Um, and it's this type of thing that, that I think nails this apocalyptic nature of what Paul is seeing. That he is one who persecuted is now preaching. One who tried to destroy is now making communities of that faith in the world. So Paul um, says that this is when he goes out and this is what is going on and people are praising them. But then the page turns, chapter 2, which is very long. Um, I'll read it as we go through it. Then after 14 years, I went up to again Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along. Now, um, Titus is going to become, an, uh, Chris or Nicole, the narration, the, the Greek word for narito, uh, do you know how to pronounce that? Like, it's the narration word that, that you guys use at Sarawak, but there's, Paul is, is doing what they call a narito in ancient rhetoric, which is this idea of telling some story in which it can apply to your story. It's like a testimony, but not just a testimony of his life. It's a testimony for the Galatian congregation to learn what he's trying to tell them. So he's not just telling his story like, look, this is all I did. Anyways, back to the story. He's telling them, like, here's a segment of the trial I went to that applies to the trial's you're going through with this congregation. It's an object lesson in that way. It's, and so the break he's taking isn't just to add, like, here's how great I was. You don't know me, but I'm kind of a big deal. What he's actually trying to do is say, um, here's how this journey I've been on relates to the journey you guys are about to undertake. So Titus comes along on this journey, and Titus is a Greek, and Tritus is not circumcised, and in this meeting with these people who are in Jerusalem, he is not compelled to be circumcised, it says. Um, and I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with the esteemed as leaders. Um, uh, pillars, he says at one point, which is, is in some sense to say what the church is is a new temple. Um, when he uses the language of pillars, uh, I don't know if that's going to show up in this translation or if that's the Greek. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I had not been running the race in vain. And here Paul, again, is trying to say what he hopes and is his inspiration for what he is doing in the world is that God is building one community of faith in the messianic movement of Jesus, not two. He's only building one. To jump forward to the back of your bulletin, this quote from N.T. Wright, he had been teaching and putting into practice the truth of the gospel, that's his phrase, by this 
phrase, Paul is referring to the new reality accomplished in the Messiah's death and resurrection, that because dark powers had been overcome and new creation launched, and because the gift of the Messiah's spirit, all believers of whatever background stood on level ground within the community. The theology and praxis of a church united across boundaries of ethnic, class, and gender distinctions never was for Paul a secondary matter. It was the very heart. Otherwise, one being it's, it would be in effect saying that the Messiah did not, after all, defeat through his death the powers of darkness that divide and corrupt the human race. What Paul is going there to make sure of is that this message, that there is one community, one faithfulness that goes on from here, is being mirrored in Jerusalem and being mirrored in his message. And so he wants to make sure that what he's doing in the world as a sign of this new creation is being modeled there. Because if it's not, I think he thinks the whole thing is in vain. He doesn't want two churches. He doesn't want a mission outpost that's more eccentric and one that's, that's um, still practicing the temple circumcision and, and this sort of thing. Is that he wants them to be one gospel, one group. And again, thinking back to Peterson's distinction, um, translating this at the time of civil rights, that there is one family. Um, there is one group, not two. And so Paul wants to make sure what he's not doing is in vain. Um, those, uh, though, who, who, Titus, who was with me, was compelled, uh, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Um, sorry, uh, I preach among the, I wanted to be sure I was not, I got to get closer too. Uh, can you guys even read this? I'm sorry. Yet not even Titus who was with me was yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not want to give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul here is saying that Titus, who I, has been brought along on this journey to sort of be a test case for this community, is not compelled to be circumcised. And the Jerusalem church stood with him while there were believers around who wanted to say, no, that's the proper way to do this. So Paul is saying that his mission was confirmed in that space with the pillars, with the other believers, that his gospel is not a gospel plus, but is a news, the truth of the gospel of what God has done in Jesus Christ is enough for us. And his spirit in our adoption through faith is the message of the gospel. Nothing else on top of that. And then Paul uh, switches the honor society. This is where I think it's important to remember that we live as inheritors of this deep and in the ancient Near East, the honor society had specific roles, leaders, teachers, this, that, and the other, and to shame that. Um, Paul is saying that God does not show favoritism in this. It's coherence to the mission and to the gospel that Paul is seeking. There's no getting there first and then being able to claim that over somebody else. There's no having more in it. There is no other place except for coherence to what God has done in Jesus Christ. And they added nothing to Paul's message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, uh, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, that's where it is, gave me uh, and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship 
when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The early church, which we can often forget, is not just involved in a religious experiment of binding all these people together. It's bound in an economic partnership in sharing, if we go back to Acts 2, all things in common. Now, it's not clear that Paul is holding that message of all things in common for all the churches he's setting up throughout the ancient Near East and the Roman Empire, but what is clear is that the solidarity of mutual care in material ways to each other is one of the peak messages of the gospel. To be a Christian is to be engaged with other Christians in material forms of support and love and effort together. It's not just a spiritual reality that we participate in that doesn't touch the material, but it's a spiritual reality that meets with us in the material so that we care for and love and support one another in this world. And what Paul says is that was not something he was eager to throw off, but what he had been meaning to do all along. There's a great book that came out a couple years ago called Remember the Poor that tries to make the argument that at least some of all of Paul's letters could have been avoided without this conflict because he would have been happy to go planting churches throughout the empire, remembering the poor, and going on that mission. But it's this distortion of that mission, gospel plus something else, gospel plus being brought into this old thing that is distorting what Paul has gone about. Here he introduces a theme that will take up much of the rest of the letter, at least some of it, is the slave of slavery versus freedom. They were trying to make us slaves again, but we wanted freedom. This fits with the Exodus way in which I've been trying to overlay this story too, is that we have been brought out of slavery to sin and death as the Jews were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and we have been brought into new life. We have been brought into freedom. One of the challenges with the other Gospels I tried to make last week is many of them want to bring us back to a certain form of slavery or anxiety. And this is ripe um, with much in our world. There's lots of rival ways of being the church. Does your church speak in tongues? Does your church use the King James Bible? Does your church um, uh, have expository preaching? Does your church, um, how do you guys, uh, somebody asked me, they were like, is your church um, going to help me for the end times? I was like, for sure, but based on the way you're asking the question, I don't think that's what I mean. Um, uh, There's all these gospel plus ways in the world. And what Paul says is those are us just trying to reachieve, going back to the slavery of it. And I think we see this um, more and more growing in our world. It, and, and the last week I accused politics, and I just want to go back to it for a second. For a long time it used to be like, you know, if, you're, if you became a Christian, particularly of the born-again sort, it was like time for you to vote Republican, which was a gospel-plus thing that is a distortion of the gospel. Now it seems to be that we flipped to the other side. Welcome to the Christianity. You, if you, um, and the, I see more and more people, particularly... On the left, I should say at the moment, at least this is my limited frame, so take it for what it is, willing to break fellowship with Christians over political allegiances. 
Now, I think that we can discern and think and talk about politics using that remember the poor, the material uh, support of other Christians, this stuff. I don't think we do it devoid of politics, but the idea that our two-party system can become the method by which we can break fellowship, I think, is a grievous sin for the modern world and the gospel. And the way in which we test one another and try to make sure that we're all on the same page within this political realm, I think Paul would just be... You know that the Judaizers at least had the point that this was something God faithfully had commanded. When we start doing this stuff, it's not even something that had maybe been faithfully commanded. And I think that's one of the things that tears us down often in this modern world. Paul goes one last place. Um, when Cephas uh, Peter uh, came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men uh, came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when he arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, Paul's friendly Barnabas, was led astray. But I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all, Cephas, you are not a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. Uh, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is going to lead us into this next part of Galatians that I'm very excited to preach on. But to pause here for a second today is that, is that this is that breaking of fellowship. Peter is abandoning the table with other believers. He is leaving behind meals with other believers. There's, there's some evidence you could read that he's leaving behind the covenant meal, the ritual remembrance that we practice every Sunday here, that God has rescued his people from Egypt in its first instance, and that Christ on the night in which he was betrayed, that Peter is so much being influenced. And this is, again, what's, what's helpful about Paul's gospel is he's not going to let other people influence him based on status away from what is happening. It's a hard thing. You think that's easy when other people come around and say, you're not taking it seriously enough. You're not, you're abandoning your zeal. You're moving to someplace else. It's not easy. But Paul is willing to stand in that place because it's breaking the family apart, particularly at mealtime. Table shelf fellowship in the middle of the Mideast, which is a huge thing in Luke's gospel. It's so much so that um, people say in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or leaving a meal. Um, that Jesus practices this radical table fellowship, Peter is willing to break because of peer pressure from others. And we have to ask this question about what does our own holiness look like in the world? I notice you spend time with those kind of people or you're in this type of sphere. And there's certainly a good question there. Um, uh, accountability, I, I hate using um, money terms for human relationships. Um, but there's a, there's a, a relational um, term there that we can ask those questions, but it, they can't be asked in a way of saying, you need to separate yourself from others so that you can be pure again. The purity is only found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is asking Peter um, to not build two assemblies, two different churches. I was thinking about this, funny enough, um, with relationship to churches that have two different worship services, a blended and a contemporary or something like that. I was thinking, what, are, what Paul would make of that? We have two different communities that can't bind over praising the Lord together. Um, a little inside baseball for Defiance Church. 
all the, the music teams, uh, Kim, Kim knows this and all the other leaders know that they don't get their own songs. Like, if you do a song, it needs to be able to be done by Kim and it needs to be able to be done by Park and this and that and the other because we want one common language for our worship together. Not for it to say, well, so-and-so's playing this week and I know it'll be rocking and that's what I want and then the next week, eh, maybe not. But we try to keep it uniform in a way that I think is good for our church so that we don't fall into that division. But the last thing uh, I wanted to end with is how then is this speaking to us today? How do we not, um, how do we live into the freedom of what Paul's message is for us today? I had two examples, I'll give one. One of the things is that this gospel is leading towards new creation. Um, Paul says that circumcised or uncircumcised, it's not what matters in the end, it's new creation that matters, which is an interesting uncircumcision doesn't do much for you either it's this process of new creation i'll cut off my examples for today actually uh because that's actually the ending point i don't know what type of church and gospel you inherited in your upbringing and in your growth and all this mine was pretty good but what i missed is that's what matters is new creation that what this is all going to be pointing through in Galatians is not a new mechanism by which we may be the church or may which we by, by which we may be saved, but trust in the abiding truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins, to save us from the present evil age, and in that overlap of ages, ages set us as a new creation people in the world, not bound by the old forms, but freed to live in the new ways. Let us pray. God, our Father, you have instructed us through your servant, Paul. May in hearing his story of how he received this gospel from you, how the mission is to be a light unto the Gentiles, which is us, not with our other cultural trappings, but with the announcement of what you have done in your death and resurrection through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, may we be renewed and refreshed by that gospel again. May it enter into our hearts and lives and expand them so. And may it enter into our church and throw everything off balance the way it always has. I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.